0: Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and uh, this is a special bonus edition of Inside Economics. And to help uh, with this is uh, my uh, two co-hosts, Chris, Chris Dorides. How's it going, Dr. Dorides? Been all right, hanging in there? Yeah, you're, okay. I see you're still in the office. You're about the only person in that office. There are uh, three of us here today, I believe. So. Yeah, <laughs> I was there yesterday briefly, and it was, I don't know, it doesn't feel like people are going back. Uh, yesterday was actually a bit of a busy day. I
1: think we were up to six. So. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> Critical mass. Okay. Very good. And uh, Ryan, Ryan Sweet, Director of Real-Time Economics. Got any good statistics for us, Ryan? What, What's the top of mind right now? What, what statistics do we all know? I got one for you. I got like three of them, but I'll give you one.
2: Well, I was thinking about the CPI tomorrow, but I was going to tell you I made a big mistake over the weekend. Oh, what's that? I bought the kids a cotton candy maker. Oh, no. I didn't know. Oh, yeah. oh, I no. thought it was going to be like a treat. Now it's like after dinner, before bed, they're like, can we <laughs> right. have cotton candy?
0: <laughs> I didn't even know there oh, was such a thing.
2: Oh, yeah. It, this thing's pretty cool, but their dentist is going to, you know, not be happy. <laughs> yeah. Or uh,
1: sugar prices.
2: Uh, yeah. yeah. There you go. There. <laughs> I'm going to watch the sugar price component of the CPI tomorrow. Well, yeah.
0: Ryan has every gadget on the planet, I think.
2: And then uh, now, One. One of every gadget. Somebody has two. Two that's two. That's true. So.
0: I've got a couple, a couple <laughs> of everything.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, right, and so what for, are your numbers?
0: Oh yeah. Oh, uh, did you notice, uh, natural gas prices are, uh, approaching $10 per million mm-hmm. BTU? It's yep. crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. That's more than double what it was a year ago. Yeah. Very, very, uh, I was just giving testimony to the PA, the Pennsylvania state house and cause I'm, I'm a Pennsylvania resident and, um, that was the subject of uh, a lot of that discussion. Yeah, very high mm-hmm. gas prices. Anyway, uh, that's not the topic at hand. This is a special bonus edition. It's special because we have Sheila Bear. Sheila, hi. How are you? Hi, Mark. Nice to be here. It's so good to have you. Uh, it's been... You know, we our points of contact, we've had many points of contact over the years. Uh, have, just yep. are, somehow our, our paths are intertwined in, in some way, uh, <laughs> That's right. you know, uh, going all the way back to the FDIC. Magnus. That's right. Did you know, Sheila, I don't know if you know that, but you were my biggest client at one point. FDIC yeah. was my biggest uh, client.
3: I'm not surprised. We were, we were a lot of people's biggest clients. <laughs> oh, well,
0: okay. yeah. I thought I was special. <laughs>
3: You know, I just, <laughs> oh yeah, we had, I think we had right. like a, I can't, I can't remember the size of our consulting budget. Oh my goodness. But you were, thank you, Mark. You were helping. No, your, your uh, forecasts were good and help. You know, I think we were, we benefited. Uh, we had a guy named Rich Brown who I think you probably yeah, remember you know, great. Uh, yeah. who passed away, unfortunately. And,
0: yeah.
3: Uh, but anyway, he was, uh, yeah, we were early in terms of predicting there were going to be problems in the housing market and the need to proactively do something. And And you were certainly helpful in that. So yeah, it was it was a
0: good partnership. Yeah, I mean it really uh, because you were regionally focused as you should be. You're regulated. Right. The FDIC is right. in the banking system, and you know, particularly if you go back thirty years ago, it was the footprints were very regionally focused. Right. Yeah. And that that's that was our enorm, claim yeah. to fame. You know, right. the, we right. did a lot of regional economic analysis. That's how yeah. we got to know you very well. Yeah. But Sheila, uh, I mean, I, I mentioned the FDIC, but you have a very storied you know kind of career can you just give us a sense of the the expanse of what you first of all how did you i I guess my my um knowledge of you really began when you became at fdic but you had done lots of things before that. Uh, can you just give a general sense of things
3: yeah sure so um i'm a a kansas republican grew up in kansas prairie populist kind of a you know william ellen white uh, philosophy around government And uh, I, uh, my first big job was with Bob Dole, actually, uh, who was on the Senate Judiciary Committee back when Joe Biden was uh, the ranking member. Strom Thurmond was the chair at the time. That was in the early 1980s. Got to know Senator Biden a bit, worked on the voting rights. I was a civil rights lawyer, actually, back then. That's where I started my career. And we worked on the Voting Rights Act extension um, successfully. Uh, Dole and Biden forged a compromise and it was it was an amazing experience. So I stayed with Dole for six or seven years, worked on his 88 presidential campaign, and then segued into financial uh, services after that. It was, a, it was a big change for me. I'd traditionally been in work, you know, constitutional law, immigration, all the judiciary issues. Um, but it was a good transition. And uh, so I, you know, I worked, I was a senior executive of the New York Stock Exchange. I was commissioner and acting chair of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. I was assistant secretary for financial institutions at Treasury. That was my first foray into banking in the early 2000s. Had had some small children, found a government career in D.C. was not conducive to raising small children. So (laughs) we fled to uh, the University of Amherst for four years where I taught. And then I came back in 2006 Ah. to chair the FDIC, which is where We met. So, yeah, I've had a lot of government experience, political experience, and financial market, you know, with with securities at the New York Stock Exchange and derivatives with the CFTC. And then, of course, finally with banking at Treasury and then at the FDIC. So, it's, uh, I think that helped me during the crisis because I I had a sense of, you know, I wasn't completely bank centric. I had a sense of what was going on in derivatives and and securities. And and clearly there was a, you know, uh, with OTC derivatives playing such a big role. And then, you know, the the problems we were having at the mortgage securitization market um, and lack of disclosures there, it was, uh, it, they were they were helpful insights to have uh, as we navigated that difficult space. <laughs> it right. was a very difficult time, very difficult time.
0: Right. And you've had a, a couple of other uh, jobs since uh, FDIC.
3: I have. So, yeah. So I went into... Uh, I worked at the, at the Pew Charitable Trust for several mm-hmm. years. Uh, we, we, set, we set up something called the Systemic Risk Council, which still mm-hmm. continues. I serve as a chair emerita and senior advisor there, and Erki Likkinen and, and Simon Johnson currently chair. It's a great group of mainly former uh, regulators, but also uh, industry people, academics. And we, we try to we keep an eye on system stability and try to advocate uh, for, for measures to promote system stability. Uh, and then I was a college president for a few years, where I became very right. involved in student debt issue, and, and, and very proud of some of the uh, er, the initiatives we pioneered. It was at Washington
0: College. I, I think I um, think Ryan went to Ryan uh, Washington College. Didn't he? Oh my gosh! Really? Play baseball, Ryan? Washington College. I did. Really? Baseball, Ryan, uh, I, college did. I was. at oh, Washington, Washington College.
3: That is very, Oh, what a small mm-hmm. world. Uh,
0: Are so
2: you shield. from
3: Maryland? Are you from the area originally, or how did you end up at Washington College? Uh,
2: baseball. So I grew up in South Jersey, and really? uh, a guy on my team uh, went to Washington College. And he's like, "You need to come visit this place," and yeah. I fell in love with it as soon as I yeah. set foot on campus. It's a beautiful yeah. campus.
3: It really is pretty, it, it, and a storied history too. It really mm-hmm. was George Washington's school. Uh, he, uh, it was the first. Uh, it was the first. Uh, actually, uh, it, it is the oldest I believe chartered institution under the United States. So Harvard under the Brits got chartered, <laughs> but right. we were next. <laughs> ah. So we were the oldest and uh, George Washington was actually on the board. Uh, we benefited from his personal philanthropy. We've got a wonderful uh, uh, Center uh, for the American Experience that uh, is all about American history. And yes, yeah, it is a special place. I'm glad, to, nice, to, nice to hear it alone uh, speak well of it because it is it's a great school, it really is. Anyway, we, we initiate a lot of affordability initiatives there that mm-hmm. I'm very, very proud of. And uh, after that, I decided to uh, do more of a portfolio approach, have a little more time with my, uh, with my family, with my husband to travel. So I've been doing corporate boards and advisory work since then, including with the P.G. Uh, Peterson Foundation on Student Debt.
0: Got it. And we'll come back to that for sure. Okay, great. Uh, absolutely. Um, here, I, was, I said before we went on that I was going to tease you a little bit. So here it is. Uh, okay. I, I was you know, reading your bio just in preparation for this our Wikipedia page. And it says, Forbes said you were the second most powerful woman in the world twice. Right. So, the, so why not the most powerful woman? What the heck?
3: <laughs> Well, I wanted to know that too. Angela Merkel beat me out. Oh, Angela and Merkel. So, I say? Oh. You know, some heavy competition okay. there. Yeah. Yeah. So, but uh, they, the, the sad thing was, once the, the crisis subsided, I dropped to number. 14 and i was behind lady gaga and i was quite upset about that <laughs> oh, that is
0: upsetting <laughs> and, then have to say.
3: and then when i left the fdic i dropped off but i was at the top of the list of people who dropped off so there you go no, but yeah but it was that was a headache i think it was more about the agency than me but it, it was nice accolade because the we were I, i'm proud of what the fdic did the fdic did during the crisis it was it was stabilizing it was reassuring and uh, i was very proud of the job we did
0: Absolutely. Uh, critical, I, I, I think. Uh, and, um, you know, what a wonderful career. I mean, just an amazing career. Uh, the one thing I wanted to, I want to talk a little bit about the the past, the, the financial crisis and your the role there and what FDIC did. And then uh, use that as a basis for talking about now, you know, because there's a lot of concern out there about recession risks and generally before recessions, uh, you have these imbalances in the financial system or the economy. And I want to th- talk a little bit about that. And in that context, I do want to bring in the work you're now doing with the Pew, the Pew Foundation around student loan debt. And we've been, Chris does a lot of work in the student loan area. And there's a lot to talk about there, you know, with regard to current policy in terms of forbearance and uh, debt forgiveness and that kind of thing. And Curious right, right, what you think right. about all those things. But first, first up, the financial crisis, uh i i want to i think i might have said this to you before i can't remember your answer i want to try it again and see uh how you respond uh in my view in my humble view of all of the policy actions taken during that period 2008 2009 particularly you, you know after fannie and freddie were taken over by the government lehman failed it was a chaos it was just very chaotic obviously uh and there were a lot of Policy responses trying to quell the crisis—you know everything from TARP to you know all kinds of bailouts and everything else—but the one thing that I think doesn't get enough credit uh, that really made a huge difference was when you, at the FDIC, guaranteed bank debt. You said, "Look uh, to to creditors out there, uh, money good. If you buy a bond issued by a bank, and of course banks issue bonds to raise." the cash they need to make loans and extend credit keep the economy moving if you buy that bond it's money good uh, that you know you're get you'll get your money back and as soon as that happened as i recall i think literally to the second when it was announced you could see libor ted spreads come in ted spread right. being the difference between libor the the rate banks charge each other and the risk free short term treasury yield and if that gaps out that means people are panicked and banks need to charge each other a lot of Uh, interest to compensate for the risk. But when that comes in, that's an indication that people are feeling calmer. And it came, it maxed out like the, you know, right before the announcement at the all time high, and it, it came in very rapidly. Do you, does that resonate with you? Does that, does that action, is that in the top of the list of things that you think really played a key role in quelling the financial crisis?
3: Yeah. So I, I actually I wrote a, a book called By the Horns, uh, my memoir of the financial crisis. And I spent quite a bit of time on that. That that was a um, we were originally asked. I'll, I'll never forget it. I, <laughs> so hey Paulson said, you need to come to my office. And we couldn't find out what the meeting was about. And I kind of walked in and I had I, I smelled an ambush. So he was <laughs> he was sitting there office with Ben Bernanke. And then on the phone was Tim Geithner. And I think, you know, kind of some of our different perspectives are well known at this point. Uh, but anyway, they they basically had a script for me, a, a little press release. They wanted me to stand up there and say that we were going to backstop all, all all bank debt, not just bank debt, not insured banks, but holding company debt. OK, so this is mm-hmm. not this is bit, went beyond insured depositories and that the Fed and the Treasury would be right behind me. So I said, well, that's <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> So I took it, I told my, I took it back, I talked with my team, I talked with my board. And my main question was, why, why do we need to guarantee all debt? The problem is banks couldn't roll their debt, right? They were heavily mm-hmm. reliant on short-term financing, you know, overnight financing, a lot of it. They couldn't roll their debt. And so I said, Well, let's we'll guarantee newly issued debt. We can do that. The stuff that's already out there, investors are still gonna be at risk. And, and but we should also charge for it because this is a risk for us. We're using the deposit insurance fund basically to to backstop debt of very large financial institutions, it, 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 you know, including at a level where we're not directly backing the depository, which is our charter and mandate. So we took that back, and after some toing and froing, uh, that was the program we put in place, and it was successful. And uh, I I think you're right because you know I look we we terminated that program pretty promptly, whereas the Fed facilities continued on for many years. And I I think that's a mistake because you should look in times of true crisis, looking at temporary debt guarantees, I think is a better way. It does not increase money supply. It's easier to put on and and take back off, which was clearly the experience. And it was immediately stabilizing as as you point out. So I do think it was successful. I don't like bailouts at all, but if you have to do them, I think going back to that model as opposed to this heavy reliance on these fed facilities that end up becoming standing facilities needs to have more and more um, with best of intentions, but more and more fed intervention and market functioning. uh, I I think that's, that's an unfortunate trend. And we saw it again during the crisis. So uh, the pandemic crisis. So yes, thank you for recognizing that. I would also say though, I think on a macro level, that probably was one of the more significant things, but at, at a household level, I am more proud of what we did for insured depositors. We 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 had to put things. Look, when I came to the FDIC, the receivership function had really been shrunk. I mean, this was the golden age of banking. You know, everything was. They knew risk. They understood risk. We weren't going to have bank failures anymore. And and really, that component of the FDIC had which had been downsized. And we started rebuilding it when I got there. But. We also just used a lot of uh, purchase and assumption transactions. In other words, we sold but the, the smaller banks, we sold them to other smaller banks. And that was so much better to ensure seamless access, continuous access, not just to people's deposits, but also all their other banking relationships. There were, there were no disruptions because of that strategy, which we used overwhelmingly. And so that took a lot of work. I think we made it look easy, but that took a lot of work. But it was really, you saw you know, there were in, there were no bank runs. Money was coming into banks. And I think right. a lot of that was because
0: yeah.
3: at the main street level, people understood we were there and we were taking care of them.
0: Yeah. The U uh, S tre- yeah, treasury, you were behind sitting behind the the, the bank deposits and, and people. Exactly. Were confident. exactly. I want to, I want to try a couple of other sort of conventional wisdoms. They're Zandi conventional wisdoms of okay. the crisis yeah. just to get your take on it. Um, uh, another one is that you know the, the thinking out there is that the the crisis really got going with the uh, Lehman's failure when the decision was made by Secretary Paulson that there's no bailout here. the creditors of Lehman are on their own and of course you know things uh, kind of fell apart after that. But in my thinking, the the beginning of the end wasn't the real catalyst for this part of the crisis where things, completely went off the rails, wasn't Lehman. It was a takeover of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac one week before. because it Literally, it was one week before, I believe a Saturday the week before, Fannie and Freddie were put into conservatorship. And I think that kind of rocked creditors thinking that the investors in financial institutions, they thought Fannie and Freddie was an extension of the US government. And there was no way that the government would Back away from that commitment, and they did, and right. that just completely eviscerated, you know, sentiment and confidence. And then, of course, Lehman got caught up in the in the the tsunami that followed that. But what do you think of that narrative, or, or the, that 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 kind of perspective?
3: Yeah, it's a good question. There, were, there were so many things happening at once. It, it's hard to to know what the the single factor was of what was on uh, investors' mind and the market's mind and reacting to that. Um. And clearly, there's a lot of bank exposure, especially, you know, uh, yeah. there were, there were banks that were exposed to, to Fannie and Freddie when that happened and that we had to get busy uh, to to deal with that. So uh, I, I do think it was jarring. You're right. Uh, Lehman was the one that got the big headline. Um, but Fannie and Freddie, in terms of their role in the economy and their size, was way more significant than Lehman ever thought about being. I mean, I said, you know, Lehman was kind of a mid-tier Institution that I thought, would, if you for investment bank was not—I don't think anybody ever thought it was particularly well run. Did you? I never.
0: No, so no. Was, remember you know, that crazy <laughs> you know, structure, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah,
3: exactly. There was yeah. a lot of opacity, and, and yeah. you, you know, they were taking dumb risk, and so uh, yeah. Fannie and Freddie was much more because people thought they were rock solid. They were more like government utilities, and and uh, but they were clearly taking some risk too. Ironically, that the catalyst for that was the market losses they were taking on their their uh, private MBS exposures, not not on their own loan book, which was was not so not nearly as bad as what you saw in the private label securitizations. Um, but yeah, yeah, you're right, and it's uh, there, there's not been much scrutiny of that, and and it's I, and it's sad, I think, that they're still in conservatorship. I. Uh, that, that shouldn't happen. You know, nobody should be in a conservative with 14 years now or whatever. I mean, that's just it's not it, it's not what the law was set up to do. It's not conservatorships are equipped to do. And I know it, it, the problem is it just keeps being everybody's last priority to some extent. Mm-hmm. Fannie and Freddie are victims of their own success because they're kind of keeping things going anyway, even in conservatorship with all the challenges that provides. And so, if, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But it really, they need to get out of conservatorship. There, there's just no doubt about
0: it. Well, that, that's the last big thing, right? Out of the crisis. Yep. I yeah, don't think there's exactly. anything left. That's the last no, unresolved. But that's
3: right. That's exactly right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I, Chris and I had a bet like soon, I don't know, back 10 years ago about would Fannie and Freddie ever get out of conservatorship within, what was it, Chris? And t- within, a, I, it was a 10-year bet. 10-year bet. Yeah. <laughs> and I said yes. And he said no. And of course, I had to pay him the buck uh well, yeah <laughs> i'm still waiting by the way it's, it was well, a you, metaphorical book
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> i mean you, you, you would never see that at the fdic unless you know there might be a shell of something that would be in conservatorship for a long time you would never see you know operating companies stay in conservatorship that long i mean they, they lose their edge they lose their agility you've got all these constraints you lose the market discipline uh there's just so many reasons why this is this is not a thing. And like I said, I think we've been lucky that they've been able to function as well as they have uh, in conservatorship. I mean, you know, you look at Title II of Dodd-Frank, which gave the FDIC new authorities to put systemic institutions in, into a bridge, essentially conservatorship. And that, that's got a three-year limit on it, which really is the outside of, of you know, which how long you want to keep uh, financial institutions under government stewardship. So I I do I, I, uh, I do think it's a problem that's is eventually going to become more obvious that it's a problem. Like I said, that they're, they're being good sports and, and continuing to do a good job, even though they can ten, continue to operate uh, in, in conservatorship without, without much control of their own destiny.
0: Well, I think you said it, you know, if, if the view is that it ain't, it ain't broke, um, right. you know, I just don't see a change. It's pretty hard. Uh, you no.
3: Know, it's, it's hard to see it. No, I, I think that's right. And, uh, but at some point it's going to, I think there are going to be issues and then, you know, because operationally, the, they're um, well. They need to build capital, and that sweep was clearly a mistake. And so they're finally accumulating capital now and, and getting more stable balance sheets. But operationally, too, um, there's a lot of you know. With credit risk, it's less of a concern because they've still got the government backstop. That's, a, I guess, a benefit of being conservatorship. But operationally, um, you know, there's a lot of risk there, and yeah. uh, and you you want top talent. You given their imprint, you want top talent especially on the technology
0: side. So. Well, I'd love to have you back. Just talk about Fannie and Freddie because th- it feels <laughs> like we could have a really good conversation slash we're, debate, disagreement. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <but> we're, <laughs> yeah, we got a lot, we got a lot <laughs> of ground to cover here. Okay, that's all right. No, so I digress. Yeah, Sorry yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I no I was, that, yeah. That's excellent. <laughs> yeah. I, I, had another, I had another kind of Zandy conventionalism, but I, I think we should push on to okay. one other thing uh, in the wake of the financial crisis, Dodd-Frank. Obviously that was a major reform. Right legislation i think passed in 2011 and well I guess, I guess this is a Zandi conventionalism i view it as a success i mean there's a lot there was a lot of moving parts there and you know not all parts worked as well as uh, the other but at the end of the day it feels like it got the system to a much higher level of capitalization liquidity much better risk management you can be very critical of the the stress testing process but at the end of the day that Feels like that was that's been a therapeutic process, at least from my perspective. Do you? How do you feel about Dodd Frank? Uh, do, you, do you do you do you view yeah, it as so, fondly uh, as I just articulated it?
3: Well, you, well, I was very involved with it, uh, and uh, yeah, I think uh, you know we pushed hard on Title II to give us broader, uh, conser- you know, authority to take over entire institutions. We only had a jurisdiction over the insured depository piece during the crisis, which was another impediment. It was uh, our toolkit wasn't as adequate as it should be. So I, I think that was good. We pushed for the Financial Stability Oversight Council. Obviously, you know, ironically, Dodd-Frank, except for the Collins Amendment, Dodd-Frank doesn't really address capital other than extolling the regulators to do the stress test and et cetera. But it's, mm. it's still there's a lot of discretion. But I mean, the regulators got religion on it. Um, I still think I think the banks are still. Could use some more capital i, I gotta be honest oh, really? with you i think well right? i mean i think in yeah. normal times they're fine uh, uh-huh. and i think in, in mild dips they're going to be fine i think during the pandemic uh if the Fed hadn't stepped in especially with the corporate debt backstop i think you've would seen a lot of banks in trouble again i mean they like to brag about oh see how well capitalized we were we worked with fine they did do fine good for them i'll give them that but i don't think that would have been the case if the Fed hadn't stopped them with really massive liquidity support so we need to be honest about that. And if you know, and if we, we're just gonna accept a paradigm that to be, you know, banks, we're gonna accept these very large banks and accept that they're, you know, they to be profitable, they have to operate at the level of leverage that is gonna be unstable unstable in, in deep times of economic stress, and we're gonna bail them out. I think that's what we've got now. Okay, let's just say it, that's what we're doing. <laughs> but i i don't think I, I think we overplay this oh they're so well capitalized if, if mother fed hadn't come in uh I, I think we would have seen a very different uh, situation and, you know maybe that's okay but i i, yeah. I do think that we uh, the, the the capitalization of the banking industry is is sometimes over it people are over, overly optimistic in terms of how it's described i also think you know in countercyclical cyclical capital buffers boy this year I don't know if they're going to do it or not, but if they're if they're going to invoke a catastrophic capital buffer, this would be the year to do it. Mm-hmm. Profitability is still strong. Recession risks are high. Do it now. Build in a little extra cushion before you know before the uh, the economy hits the skids, which it, which it may very well in the next year or two.
0: What, one interesting thing in support of the perspective you just articulated that I have been surprised by is that despite the dramatic increase in capitalization, if you just look at you know tier one capital in you right. know, basic you know, the uh, measures of capitalization. It it's definitely way up from where it was. Oh god, but yeah. This, yeah. But despite that, return on equity, return on assets is pretty good. I mean, yeah. Not bad. <laughs> yeah.
1: You, you know? would
3: think, well, so the first yeah. of all, you were starting from a very low baseline see those increases. <laughs> so let's note that. But yeah, I said I've all this belly aching about bank yeah. capital requirements is like, oh my God. And they become globally dominant. I mean the European banks are on the skids. They just What is your problem? I mean, but they're still they're relentless. (laughs) Oh no, relentless. They're you know, they want to put take treasuries out of the denominator and reserve accounts out of the denominator. And you know, they're just they're just relentless. More leverage, more leverage. They won't, they won't stop, even though it it, to your point, it has served their interests. They are still very profitable and and globally so much more competitive than they were before.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was looking at ROA return on assets, and the ROA for the system, this is FDIC data. Today is as high as it was in the teeth of the housing bubble prior to the financial crisis, and of course that was all fictitious profits. That was yeah. stuff that you were well, making up. Right.
3: Yeah, and <laughs> this and this year, we still have fairly low interest rates. This interest rates, rise, their spreads, or you know, their net interest margin is going to go up. It, you know, and, yeah. unless it's a bad recession, then we'll see what the credit losses look like. But
0: yeah, well, that you know, yeah. the economists are saying Annie Miller works. You know, that's what yeah. it seems to say. You yeah, know? yeah, 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 so- yeah. I won't go into, go into that. Did you, (laughs) you, You guys studied Medigliani Miller, right? Oh, young guys, you young, course, guys, course, you young yes. guys, you studied yeah, that. Yeah yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Actually, I think they wrote that seminal paper when they won the uh, Nobel Prize in 1959. That that's the year I was born. That long right? ago,
3: yeah. yeah well, the the only thing that storts that analysis is too big to fail, right? So if you can't, yeah. I mean, if, if there was no there was no perception of of government backstop, let's, let's face it, there still is. That would be a more per- perfect theory. But yeah, yeah, at some level, I think it, it does prove the point.
0: Yeah. Anyway, well, let's uh, let's roll forward to the current time, and uh, let me ask you this broadly, uh, and, and let me let me uh, preface it by saying that, you, and I think I mentioned this earlier, that uh, recessions that we've experienced here in the U.S. since World War II have typically had some significant, what I would call, imbalance in the economy, something wrong. Deep in the balance sheet of the economy, either in the financial system right. or the American household or American corporations or state and local government or federal government, somebody's done something really untoward, kind kind of a fault line, in, you know, down the balance sheet. And it's not a problem if everything sticks to script, but if you get into a rising rate environment like the were in one now, or the economy starts to weaken, it exposes that fault line. That fault line shakes, and that's what is the right. thing that sends you, you know, down under. So if that, with that, is context. First, does that feel like a good characterization of the mm-hmm. dynamics yep. here? And second, can you? And, and this is really hard. And you know, I can't do it, but if you can. If anyone can do it, you can. Is there something out there in the balance sheet of the economy, the financial system, households, corporates that make you nervous, worried, kind of on the radar yeah. screen, top of mind?
3: Yeah. So I, I'm actually, uh, look, we need to get inflation under control and the economy's gonna have to slow down to do that. But I, I, I'm optimistic that this time around, uh, it's really, you know, it's gonna be wealthier people if they take the hit. Because, you know, the household budgets are, balance sheets are still in pretty good shape. Consumer spending is not so heavily driven by borrowing, especially mortgage borrowing, and, you know, the home equity revise. That we saw prior to the crisis. So, in terms of hitting consumer spending and consumer wealth, I'm more optimistic that this will be really hitting, and it is already hitting, hitting financial markets, hitting real estate markets, hitting community markets. But wealthier people tend to be exposed to those, and wealthier institutions. At the at the at the household level, I'm hoping that that it's going to be a, a pretty uh, not tempered response impact excuse me at the household level so the things that i worry about in turn so but but we may go into recession or we just you know a a stagflation environment you know i do worry about corporate debt it's at Mm all-time highs was it 12 trillion now or something Mm -hmm. i mean that's just non you know non-bank non-financial institution debt Mm -hmm. uh i think about 70 percent of it is fixed that's good but you know there's still a lot out there that floats and then the stuff that needs to be refied is going to be at higher rates. And so, and a lot of it's been, you know, by uh, issued by non investment grade companies. So, as financing costs go up for, for the corporate sector, can they handle it? Even if they do handle it, will they compensate for the higher financing cost with, you know, reduced? Uh, reduce, you know, try to cut expenses through, through labor force reductions, you know, to maintain their margins and their investor distributions, their shareholder distributions. So I do worry about that hitting people at the, uh, at the main street level. And, and there may be corporate failures, too. I don't know. We'll, we'll see how high the financing costs go. And But if you're in a stagflation environment where demand is going down, demand for the products going down, the financing costs are still going up. That can be challenging for a lot of them. On the banking sector, to our earlier point, yes, they're much better capitalized. I don't think we have a good ha- handle on the largest banks, uh, especially those with prime brokerage operations. They're, they're, they're non-banking clients in, in what those market exposures look like. Obviously, there's a lot of market volatility right now. We've seen We've seen a few... Naked people swimming already <laughs> to go you know, to coin. I think it was where our, you know, a Warren Buffett said, yeah, you, you, you well, don't know when the who's, who's so naked until yeah. the tiger goes down. So we've seen a couple naked bodies already. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Not, and this is something FSOC and Janet Yellen and focused on the non-bank, you know, we in, no. and back to Dodd-Frank. And that actually, dodd frag gave regulators some authority to deal with the non-bank sector, and it's really not done much with that. Uh, so, But I, I think that's really what's going on in the unregulated sector, where there's not a lot of transparency, and more importantly, interface of that sector with the regulated sector, which we have to keep stable and operating. So that, those are my two worries. Uh, okay. If, if so worries,
0: so just to paraphrase to make sure I got it right. Kind of on the list is corporate leverage or you know, yep. the increase in, in uh, debt uh, right. um, among non-financial corps, uh, non-banks. The non-banks, and uh, yes. when I think about non-banks, it's kind of fintechy. Uh, Maybe non-bank private mortgage, mortgage yeah, hedge funds, private, private equity, equity, venture capital,
3: yeah, yeah I, those guys. All, yeah. Yeah. All the above. Yeah, yeah.
0: All of the above, the kind of a melange of folks that right. aren't regulated, they don't have insured deposits and they use a
3: lot of leverage. they a use, of leverage. use a lot of leverage. Yeah. And it's,
0: it's less transparent, more opaque. You are not really exactly. sure. No stress exactly. testing that you you know, nope. that kind of thing. Nope.
3: Nope. Okay. That's right.
0: The the I, I wanna talk about two things you didn't mention. One okay. is uh is uh, mortgages. And the second right. one is student loans. And I know you've right. been doing a lot of work there. Where would you like to go first mortgages or student loans?
3: Um, well, let, let's do mortgages. Cause I want to spend more time on student, student loans. Okay. <laughs> so, sure. Okay, absolutely. So, like,
0: so, so how do so you feel about
3: mortgages, yeah, yeah. So I, I think we're in pretty good shape there. Good shape. Uh, okay. I think, yeah, I don't, uh, well, at least for Fannie and Freddie, the credit quality is, is so is dramatically, you know, uh, stronger credit scores, strong, you know, stronger debt to income ratios, stronger, a uh, lot of equity, a lot of equity. We a lot of that through home price appreciation that may correct. And you've done some good research on that. But but even that, I mean, FHA is maybe another situation, Again, you know, that's on the government's time. You're not going to see those losses go back into the private sector, same way with student debt. going to have losses there, continued losses, but Again that's that's on the government's balance sheet it's not in the private sector so in terms of precipitating a, an economic or financial crisis, I don't mm-hmm. see either of either of them uh, triggering that actually for for home prices my big worry is not so much crisis risk or whatever I, I think look I want home prices to correct. I don't know about you but I think a, a little, taking some air out of that well, bubble Sheila would be a not really my good home
0: thing. not my home please. <laughs> Please. Well, yeah. I gotta tell Chris's you, home, even, no problem. It's not even, my home.
3: <laughs> yeah, you know, but e- look, even even people who already own their homes, so if they're going to be there for a while, what's the impact? Their taxes <laughs> are point. going up, right? They might have ah. a thirty-year fixed-rate mortgages, but now they've got a bigger tax bill. And they're I not going to monetize point. on their house for a long time, and people who want to buy houses it's becoming nigh on impossible. So at least the starter home, the modestly priced home segment boy, I would really like to see more supply come in, bring those prices down. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a lot of underwater uh, borrowers. So it's not, you know, I I don't think you're going to, some mild correction there, or at least a sustainable gradual correction, I I think would be actually hugely beneficial. Uh, But no, I I don't see a a crisis brewing in in residential mortgage markets at all. CRE may be another thing with bank exposure there. Well, That may be a little bit of a risk uh, with the banking sector, but and student debt is, you know, there's massive amount. We've got a, what, 1.75 trillion now, but 1.6 of that is, uh, oh,
0: 1.7. Okay.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Including yeah. private. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. And I think it's about 1.6 for government. So <clears throat> yeah, it's a lot. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, borrowers who are unable to make their payments when they graduate. Uh, you know, we don't really, it's, it's hard to know what the current, we've had you know a payment suspension for over two years now so we don't really know what's going to happen when payments have to resume again Uh, but my guess is it's going to be very very difficult for a lot of borrowers to start making their payments which is why the Biden administration really needs to decide what are they going to do on debt cancellation and then have a definitive time for people to to start up payments again and, and add some preparation time but to start up payments again without clarifying whether and to what extent you're going to forgive debt, people are going to say, well, why should I start paying if you're going to cancel it two months from now, right? Yeah. So they need to sequence it. They need to, what are you going to do a debt cancellation and then, and then get the payments restarted again. Rich Cordray's over there doing some great work trying, there, there's something, so there the student debt, the automatic default is a 10-year repayment plan. And that's, that's best for most people. Cause you know, you don't want your your debt payments go on forever. So a 10-year amortized loan, again, if you keep your borrowing within affordable levels, and that's really what the, the Peterson Foundation initiative is about, that's fine. But if you've got trouble, there's something called income driven repayment, which basically is you you pay a percentage, it's based on a percentage of your income, not just a fixed, you know, 10-year amortized loan. But there's some downsides to it, too, which is, is that if your payment doesn't cover your interest, you're, you're going to have, you know, you're, you're going to have negative amortization, your interest is going to accumulate. And a lot of the outstanding debt now, it comes from interest accumulation on on loans that are not performing or are, are not, the payments aren't sufficient to cover the interest. Plus, you most of them go out 20, 25 years, so going to be paying for a long time. And even at the end, you get is left is forgiven. There's a tax bill that goes with that Congress should never really fix that either. So there's a lot of, pro- so the idea of income driven repayment is a good idea. There are a lot of problems administratively with the design that makes it easy for people to move into it. It's too complex. Rich Cordray has been trying to, and there are multiple plans. So Rich Cordray has been trying to simplify it and put everything into a single repayment plan. And then better incentivize the, the loan servicers to put them in because there's there's too much paperwork involved. It's it's, it's expensive to get kids into IDR's income driven repayment. So the default is just kind of put them in forbearance where, you know, their debt just keeps getting they're not paying but their debt just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So there there's a lot of, of issues that the Biden folks need to address, which I, I think they're very aware of. But but really they need to provide clarity on cancellation and repayment. And then most, they should start repaying. I mean, look, I have compassion for student borrowers. Absolutely. But most, and there have been ripoff schools and there have been, there's been marketing of, of debt to kids that's just not been appropriate. But overall, most borrowers have gotten good degrees that have enhanced their income potential. They can afford to pay back either through the tenure repayment plan or the IDR. And they should, because I think you know, debt is a serious thing, and we're teaching kids all the wrong lessons with this kind of mess we've got uh, for, for student loans right now. And this, I'm speaking in a personal capacity here, but it, it's just it, it's not it's so well intentioned and, and so not working the way it should. And this idea, maybe you'll have to pay it, maybe you won't. It, it really, young people need to take. Student debt, any kind of debt, seriously, including student debt, and that's going to be their first experience with debt. It's a financial obligation. It's going to put a burden on your future for many years. What you have to pay on your student payments is money you're not going to be able to spend on vacations or dinners out or whatever. They need to understand that, and so many don't. I mean, um, Beth Akers, who is an economist, she said he and I did a a survey a few years ago of first year of, of students after their first year to find out what they thought about debt. And a third of them didn't even know they had debt. I mean, this is like, you know, there is such a crying need for transparency around this: what student debt is, what it means, what they're borrowing, what's going to cost them when they graduate. I mean, and that's really what the Peterson Foundation is trying to do. We're not getting... They do not. I do. They they do not get into the any of the policy debates or anything like that. That's not the kind of foundation they are. They just want to empower young people, provide more transparency, help them, you know, sort through a process that's now too well, complicated. Let
0: me, sure. sure. Let me provide a little context. I don't
3: care about this or anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I can see I this, this is yeah. a big deal. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there. If you talked a little bit about, you know, the fact that the and this is for the listener out there who's not as right. well versed in all right. of this. Right. And right. The, the first thing is, you know, obviously, since the pandemic, there's been a moratorium on student loan payments. The President Trump right. first and now President Biden under executive order has continued right. to extend that forbearance. That comes up in August, I believe, is the next.
3: It's, yeah, of, it's been a moving time from the most recent extensions yeah. to up to August. Correct.
0: Right. And I think uh, on that issue, Chris has actually done a lot of work here. Correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but we the the if people start repaying, uh, let's put the the debt forgiveness for aside for a second, and they have to begin paying again in August.
1: The macroeconomic consequence of that is small. Is that do I have that right, Chris? That's right, because most of the debt forgiveness. Well, you know, a lot depends on how this thing is actually structured. We're talking right. about ten thousand dollars of debt forgiveness. Is that for everyone? Is that just for uh, folks with less than ten thousand dollars worth of debt? Right there. To uh, Sheila's point, there are plenty of people who have large debt amounts, but have the income because of their education to pay. It's really the, the population that's at risk is that lower balance uh, population that didn't complete their their degree, mm-hmm. right? So if you had something that was very targeted towards them, perhaps you actually would have a little bit more of a net impact on the economy versus the broader uh, debt forgiveness. But yeah. yeah, as as it's been discussed, a blanket ten thousand dollar that forgiveness would actually have a pretty limited impact on uh, macroeconomic activity.
0: Right. Right. And then on the debt forgiveness. So this is a, you know, a debate that's been raging for quite some time, but it's taken on added life and under the Biden administration that, and of course Biden during the campaign, and I think that's his heart is in the income repayment plan that Sheila, you right. talked about, right. he put forward, I, I remember evaluating it and writing a paper about his uh, income repayment plan. And it's basically kind of juicing that up. And it's very targeted, meaning, you know, if you have to spend uh, uh, more than 10% of your income on student loan debt, then it will cut you a break. And if you're still paying on that debt 10 years later, it's more than likely you're one of those folks Chris just mentioned, you know, you didn't didn't graduate or you got a degree that was not going to give you the income you need. So, Mm -hmm. and if you work for public in government or for public service. And yeah, we'll give you some debt forgiveness. That'd yeah. Well, like, well,
3: yeah it's, it's 10 years for public service. It's more like 2025 for, if you're not.
0: So yeah, exactly. Anyway, yeah. yeah. So um, that feels more right. But now they're talking about, and we, of course, we don't know what they have in mind because we're all waiting to hear. And I yeah. think they will sequence it. I'd be pretty shocked if they don't sequence it. Yeah. I would no. assume so. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, it doesn't yeah. make sense. Uh, but I, but, some of the numbers here are pretty big, you know, uh, that, you know, you're hearing and, and, uh, it sounds like that doesn't, that's not the direction you would go, uh, Sheila. And that, course, yeah. I don't think that's the direction you would go well, either. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
3: Yeah. I, I, I'm all for, I, I have publicly endorsed 10,000 of debt cancellation. I, you know, I, the center for responsible lending came out with that recommendation a few years ago. I used to be on their board. I think, I think they did some really good analysis. It, it's the most, of all the different options, it is the most progressive. Uh, sure, if you do it for everybody, yeah, there's some reason you know, very wealthy people are going to get $10,000 of debt forgiven, but proportionally, it helps uh, lower-income kids, kids of color, first-gen, kids who went to a school didn't get a good degree, kids that went to a poor quality school didn't get a good job. Those are, I think, about half of the students in default would have their debt wiped out with $10,000 uh so it's uh it's it, it's 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 well targeted. And you know, I'd be all for if they wanted to further target it to um to kids who didn't graduate with a degree or kids that are already in default. I mean that that borrows they're already in default. But they Good don't point. and they don't they don't they don't understand what debt is, they don't understand what they're getting into. Uh, they find out they're not well suited for college and then they've got this debt and it's not. So I have sympathy for them, especially the lower income first gens who are not gonna have the families at home to help them you know, navigate this because they didn't go to college in, in, in either. So I have compassion for them and I think we should try to help them. Um, I know it's politically unpopular. I do think too, that if you target it to that population especially if just the ones that didn't graduate or are already in distress, you know, if if you read that the the language that gives the president authority, arguably executive power, to do debt cancellation, it's clearly intended to for like loan workouts, right? So, right, like yeah. any private borrower, do you get a distressed borrow? Yeah, you write some of it off. I mean, that's really what it's what it was designed for. And I think if you target it to the more distressed populations, they'd have a better case to defend. Yeah. In court as well, uh, but I do, but you know, so I'd be fine with that. But I they just need to make a decision at this point so we can get on with it.
0: Yeah, you're making a really good point, just to reiterate that, yeah, you know, the, the president is doing this under executive order, but it doesn't mean it's not going to be challenged in the court, it's so, right, like, depending yeah. on what he does, actually, How broad
3: he, it is. Yeah,
0: will we'll determine whether this actually sticks or not you know that i
3: agree exactly right yeah very important
0: well this all brings us to the work you're now doing with the peterson foundation and this is work where we've been collaborating with you we have yes yeah yeah it's been uh, really something we've been working on for the last couple of years and it's now coming to fruition of this the and this goes to your point that kids don't really understand what they're getting into when they take on a student loan and this this tool that you've developed uh, is to help students kind of figure that out and determine right. how much debt they can actually take on. From finishing. right, did you want to explain that tool? Yeah, a yeah, yeah okay. no.
3: That what, that what, that was a, that was a nice uh, explanation of it. So it's really focused. You, you look at the student debt tools that are out there now. They're more again they're they're focused on maximizing how much you can borrow. This tool is unique. It's really about. You know, how much can you afford based on some key metrics? So there, there are only four inputs you need, where you think you want to go to school, what you think you want to major in, when, when you want to start school, because it, it depends, you know, what the economy is like once you graduate after four years. And Moody's analytics has been so helpful to us in modeling that. And and, uh, and then where do you think you want to live? Because that's going to definitely drive what your expenses are, what your living expenses are. So you put in those four inputs. That's all you need to put in. You don't need all your family financial information. I mean, some of these tools are so invasive, right. you know, asking for this and that. It's really what, what is in the young person's head in terms of their aspirations, school, major, where they want to live and when they want to start. And you can put in as, as many as you want, and it will give you a number, an aggregate number of the total amount for undergraduate degrees, the total amount you you can borrow and still have an affordable payment once you graduate and it'll walk you through so and and we define affordability to have at least after you pay out for all of your essential living expenses, you have at least $150 a month left. And we're transparent about that. That was a judgment call. We work with your folks to figure out, you know, how much to be affordable, how much you know, spending money, extra, you know, spending money to have and we settle on 150, but The tool will allow you to do more or less uh, Mm -hmm. if if you want to borrow a lesser amount or a greater amount. So that's really what it is. And it's just so simple to use. And we we tested it with a lot of young people before we're just launching uh, today, actually. And and it got a tremendously favorable response because it's really easy to use. It's fun to use. It's not invasive. We're not selling anybody's information. We're not asking for personal information about you. We're not selling your information, again, like so many of these other uh, student debt uh, tools use. So it's, it's really just to help young people navigate this very important first decision they're going to be making about borrowing. And we're really excited about it. We really yeah, appreciate it, the partnership I, I, with
0: you. Play, I've, been, I've been playing with it. And it, good, it, good, it is it, really cool and very slick cool. and quick. Really, you get an answer. Yes. You, know, yes, you don't have to wait. Yes. Yes, exactly. Like Ryan's models, you know, you click solve and it takes a a minute later because he's doing (laughs) ten gazillion calculations. (laughs) This gives you an answer. And I, I plugged in uh, economic. Oh, the other cool thing is lots of majors. You know, it's very detailed. You know, yes, it it is. Yeah, it's not uh, you know broad strokes here. It's like very specific. So I put in economics. Uh, uh-huh. and I, you know, University of Pennsylvania, because that's my alma mater. And I said, okay, right. I'm graduate. I, you know, dreamed a little and said, okay, I'm going to start in 2023. And it came back and it said I could borrow, uh, you know, given my income prospects, you know, because I get an economics major from the University of Pennsylvania, uh, $48,000, $47,350 to be precise. And I go, it,
3: well, that's good. Well, it, economics must have a good good income potential. Where, where are we going to live? Where are we going to live?
0: Oh, when, I'm sorry. Philadelphia. I'm not Philadelphia. moving. Okay. This is where yeah. I was. I, my kids say I've been sheltering in place all my life. Yeah. I'm not moving. So, <laughs> yeah. 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 Philly. That's a great point. That's a really good point because it asks yeah. you where are you going to live because the cost of the living. Yeah. The
3: cost of living is going to change. Yeah,
0: right. Change yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I thought, I go, well, 50,000 is a lot of money. Uh, yeah. But then that's the annual tuition. Though? That's what I was going to say. I mean, yeah. what's the annual no, tuition? Probably
3: yeah. probably you're going to. Yeah. So um, yeah. So, but, but again, you've got, you've got a number. It can help guide your decision making. When you get your, when you get your uh, quote unquote financial aid offer from University of Pennsylvania, that's where you end up going. You can uh, gauge that, what your likely, you know, four year cost will be against that, that dollar amount. And I think that'll empower a lot of uh, students and their families to, to know and you know, you can, I will say it's a little secret as a former college president. Families should know they can negotiate that. <laughs> that headline right. number, tuition number, is not necessarily the number you have to pay. I, I'm
0: sure Ryan did yeah. that when he was at Washington well. College. <laughs> he's, he, he's, a, he's a negotiator. no, but that
3: no that's right. But you can, yeah. you know, you can go back to the financial aid office and say, look, sorry, we don't want to borrow more than you know twelve thousand a year. And so yeah. uh, what can you do for him? And uh, they might have scholarships, they might provide a discount. So or, or if they won't do it, then you might want to look at a, a lower cost school, Washington
0: College. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I, I, you know, I thought the really cool thing is because you know a lot of kids don't know exactly what major, right? But right. this allows them to kind of get as that's a that should be a criteria in people's thinking. It's not like
3: yeah, they, well, they need to. Well, that's the other yeah. thing. It's educational in the sense that it gets them thinking about these choices are important in terms of yeah, what their right. financial situation is yeah. going to be once they graduate. Cause again, I, it, 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 it's from an educational perspective, it's really, really valuable as well.
0: And That's by the, the way, way, you got to graduate. You just got to yeah. graduate. Yes. 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 Please cannot, yeah. be,
3: cannot be emphasized too much. The worst thing is to have a debt and no degrees. You've got that debt load and you don't have the enhanced income from a college degree. So that is, yes, that is the most important thing. Um, and, and also to try to finish in four years, you let, take it to five, you know, yep. even just one more year can really add to your download.
0: I did want to say that uh, this is obviously a passion of yours because yeah. I can see uh, if you're on YouTube and watching, you can see behind Sheila. Or a couple of books you've written, you want to just to tell us about the books?
3: I have. Well, yes. Yeah, so I have a series of books, kids' books called Money Tales. There's six in the series all together. Oh, I
0: didn't know that. Okay. Yeah.
3: So, well, I put this one up, Billy the Borrowing Loofer and Booby, because it's about. I I want kids to learn what debt is in grade school. I want kids to learn <laughs> the, absolutely the 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 risk of unaffordable debt and the burdens it can place on you in grade school. So that is a fun book about takes place on the Galapagos about little, little bluefin a booby gets into big trouble with it, with the buy now, pay later scheme, actually, so, which is borrowing. <laughs> by the way. Is. So, uh, and this is a rock, rock and the savings stock. Actually, this is my first book. This is sold very, very well. And it's just about compound interest and the importance of savings. And again, starting at an early age, just a little bit every year, how you can really build significant wealth uh, just through a regular savings plan and the power of compounding. Yeah. So, yeah, those are so
0: those are two. Thanks for the the opportunity to plug them. But no, yeah, no, no. I, but I, I here's explore. here's the thing. If you if here's the question, did you illustrate those books? Oh, God, no. Oh, OK. <laughs> if I no. if you had illustrated Same those thing. books.
3: No, Amy Sheng did this one and Barry okay. God did this one. My publisher is Albert Whitman and they, they arranged for the, the illustrator. Oh, I, I wish I could draw like that. Yeah. But the illustrations well, are, are fabulous.
0: Yeah. You should know if you said, yes, I illustrated, then I'd say you are the most powerful woman in the world. I mean, <laughs> geez Louise, what can't you do? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no. yeah well, I wish I could. I well, you I want to take
2: away the cotton candy machine and I'm going to get these books. Exactly. We're going to get our nightly reading now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, Sheila, it's really been a pleasure to have you. You you know, I, I, this is not an exaggeration and I'm not sucking up, but you are a national treasurer. I'm not <laughs> oh, kidding.
3: You're sweet. That's, I am not cute.
0: kidding. You have <laughs> devoted your life to you know the uh, the to American people, and uh, with a very productive end. So thank you for all that you've done. Well, well let me country. return the
3: favor, Mark, because you've been a a, a long time advisor uh, to people in government and your 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 you know your objectivity and the quality of your economic analysis and 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 uh, thinking has always been I helped to me and a lot of people in government. Oh, so you're you're kind.
0: But as you can see, all I'm doing is having fun. so that's, <laughs> this was fun.
3: It's this was fun. was fun.
0: It really was. <laughs> Well, thank you. And uh, I can't wait till our paths cross again. Yes,
3: in person, that would be good.
0: That would be wonderful. Take care now.
3: Okay, bye-bye then.
0: Bye-bye.